This is episode 26 of Spokes with award-winning cinematographer Adrian Pencorea. You're listening to the Red Bicycle Media Spokes Podcast, a show about the experiences of a film production house and the people they work with in the film industry, with your host, James Pizarro. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Thank you again for listening. This is episode 26, and uh, I'm very excited about our guest today. Before getting to the podcast, I have a few announcements about the session it was recently selected to the 2020 DC Shorts International Film Festival. And this can be viewed online and uh, will be shown throughout North America. And the link will be posted in the show notes. I hope all of you have tried to stay busy. We have had business pick up slightly. And I think everybody's learning to work within the guidelines and rules uh, of, of the pandemic. And uh, it's great to see everybody back on said again a lot of us have been kind of forced to do different types of work but uh, nonetheless very rewarding i do want to thank all the crew that have helped us uh, throughout the years but especially this year and it's so great to reconnect with them again and uh, it's been a lot of fun with some of these projects that have been upcoming so let's get on to the show adrian's credits include glow rami a love life and he's filmed people like daniel craig Anna Kendrick, Rami Yosef, among others. One thing I've learned and will always integrate into my workflow is Adrian's humility and humbleness that that still uh, comes through not only his work, but uh, how he partners on set. He started off as a PA and, uh, uh, and now has DP'd for some pretty big projects. So without any further ado, Adrian Pancorea. First of all, I was very moved by, uh, and I'm certainly not going to um, necessarily have you re, re, uh, re, um, go over that ground, but how, uh, how you got into cinema as well as um, uh, your first major, major feature where um, you, unfortunately you, you had found out your, your dad had passed and uh, um, I'm telling you, I was in the car listening to that, and that was uh, that was a moment that uh, I think was was very strong and really resonated. That uh, you know, please tell me how um, you know how you even went on and uh, uh, just recount that that story where you actually just finished that night. It was your was it your first night of shooting? No, we weren't even we weren't uh, we hadn't we hadn't even started the evening. It was a really it was on this this show called Rocksteady. It was my first million dollar feature. And back then when I was working, I had, the, I had this idea in my mind, uh, completely, completely unfounded as it was, but it was just something where it's like, if I got my first million dollar feature, it would be something that my my father wouldn't have to worry about me anymore. Cause he was always really, uh, I mean, he was a working class person. So, you know, like filmmaking is, about as relatable as me going to the moon, you know? So it's like, it was something where for my father, who was a tradesman by, uh, in every sense of the word and kind of a, a person who worked with his hands in almost every regard, it was something that he just was really concerned about me being able to sustain myself in this industry. So, uh, on that movie, um, I had left him a couple of weeks before and I told him this is the first million dollar movie and you're not going to have to worry about, this anymore things are going to be okay you know i'm starting to have a foothold in my career so to speak 
and we were shooting uh, our one of our first big night scenes. And it was upstate New York in, in the Hudson Valley area uh, near Kingston. And it was uh, a massive open field with a dark-skinned African-American star who was wearing a silver lame jumpsuit. So from a lighting perspective, it was really difficult. We didn't have the lights we needed. They were frankly not, not big enough and considering the red from back then. It was not that fast of a camera. It was still only effectively a 320 ASA. So lighting for that at night, that specific place at night, with those conditions, it was proving to be daunting. And then there was thunderstorms. Uh, there was thunderstorms that night, so we had to set up and, and bring down our lights on, on lifts three separate times. And uh, and my uh, and it was just it was a really difficult evening. And then it was about one o'clock in the in, at night, uh, one o'clock in the morning. Excuse me, the next uh, so past midnight. And uh, I had a phone call from my eldest brother, Michael, and who never calls me, not never calls me, but like usually when he calls me, there's a purpose. And to get a call that late, I knew something was wrong. And my my uncle had just had a stroke. So I had uh, I, I had assumed that it was something, maybe an aftershock or of stroke wise and that this had happened because I figured it was, it must've been a death in the family, frankly, for him to call that late. And then I picked up the phone and Michael wasn't talking. And as soon as I knew, as soon as I, he wouldn't talk, I knew it was my father. And I just told him we had lost my mother from cancer in 97. So as soon as that happened and he couldn't talk, I just said, we've been through this before. Tell me what happened. And then he told me uh, how my father passed away. And, uh, and then basically right when that phone call ended, the rain stopped and it was time to start working again. So I gave some instructions to my, my, my key grip and my gaffer. And there was a large 4K light up at the top of the street about 150 yards away from set. And I just walked up towards it saying I had to go check something out. And uh, it was funny to walk towards the light at that moment. Kind <laughs> of funny in that regard. And uh, I just I cried for about five minutes. And, uh, and then I came back and we had to get to work. And it was actually, I was really shaken by it, but it was good to have the work at that moment to focus on. And then we went, got through that. Uh, we shot everything we got, we got everything we needed. And then it was, uh, we wrapped just when the sun started to break above the horizon, we were canopied by trees. And I went to my director, Mustafa Khan, who at the time of the production, his father was dying. And uh, Mustafa was like, if my father dies during this, you're gonna have to step up and direct. So he was really having a difficult time with that because his father meant so much to him. So right before I left, I went to Mustafa and, and I told him uh, my father died and Mustafa just started bawling. And, uh, and then I, I just tried to hold it together for him. He gave me a big hug, I drove down to my, uh, my dad's place planned his funeral, left that day to come back and shoot again that night. We, we finished the week's work of night work that week. And, uh, and then I, I missed the next day of shooting to the barium and then, uh, on the, on the following Monday and then, and then kept, kept working. And, and that's the funny thing about filmmaking, especially in an independent side is that you've become such a family with those people that 
you know, like they really make an effort to basically to kind of carry you along. And that's one of the great things about about filmmaking, frankly, that I love is just the familial nature of it. It is almost like carnival in a way that you guys kind of travel together and bond together. And and just as quickly, once you wrap, you know, that family kind of dissipates and a new one forms in the next project. And maybe that's why I, I've stayed with it and been connected with it for so long, because I don't have a ton of family anymore, certainly after the passing of my dad and whatnot. And I, I really value the, the nature of it, that kind of that coalescence of a family out of nowhere. So. You also mentioned that um, to write and continue that story that you had a chance to go through some emails and and then found out oh, that, yeah. which which I can't imagine like reading that at all. And I, first of all, how'd you get in? Right. Uh, that, that's one. Of the, well, I guess it's a it's a dad's uh, password and that might have been uh, the first clue. But how did you uh, yeah. tell, tell us well, about that? I, I had to uh, I had to go through my father's things with my brothers and basically I was going through his emails to uh to just try and like kind of see if there was anything we missed or just tidy up any kind of affairs and uh i happened to find uh an email exchange with a friend of his who uh who i also was a, a part of their life as well and it was an email that he was sent to his friend basically saying that confiding in his friend that he didn't have to worry about me anymore because i had my first million dollar feature and things were going to be okay so i took great solace in knowing that it wasn't just lip service I was paying to him. He actually kind of felt this kind of sense of calm and relief in, in terms of worrying about me all the time, being able to find a, a place in the film industry. So when I read that email, it was everything kind of flooded back. And it was just something where I was like, it, it gave me an incredible amount of, of solace to know that at least he didn't, he had that sense of, of security and comfort knowing that I, I had at least started my career in a way that was a little bit more solidified and a little bit more uh, not sure because nothing's sure in the film industry but you know you want people that you love to be able to to walk with high and strength in both feet and that was one of the first times when I started to feel like the ground was starting to settle underneath me a little bit so I mean, to that end, uh, you you had been doing or still do commercial work, and I, I think you every filmmaker has been asked this: is uh, how did you you know when did you feel that you made your turn? When did you feel that you know maybe because everybody has that kind of bit of self loathing. You look at your old work and you you never think it's good enough, so to speak. Everybody makes a reel and they don't think it's good enough. When did you think you made the turn? And uh, was there a particular project or, or or commercial that made you feel that you know maybe I know what I'm doing? It was uh, Night Owls. Uh, the feature I did with Charles Hood, because it wasn't a lot of money. It was $140,000. And we had to plan it to basically to the shot because we had such little money, such little time. And we were working with professional actors. You know what they were doing, like Rosa Salazar and Adam Polly and Tony Hale. And it was something where it was like, like, here's our plan. We have this script. Here's how we plotted everything in terms of the style and shots of the camera. So when that movie was done and we watched it, went on to success at South by Southwest and whatnot. But when I saw the finished movie the first time, I was like, okay, I'm like, when I'm not insane, the, the choices we made were smart. They have resulted in a movie that is a good movie. And that was before having the validation of it getting into a good festival and actually doing so well and getting really, really uh, stellar reviews. 
but just to see, to know the plan, know the experience of shooting it and then seeing the end result, I was like, I can tell a story and you can't ever control what happens to that story in terms of the film. You can't, you can't hope it does well, or you can't be assured that it's going to be a success, but to just watch it on its own merits and be able to say, I can tell a story that was enough to be able to carry me again for another few years in terms of like, I, I belong in some regard. I should, I, at the end of the day, I can tell a story and that's, sometimes that's what you need to kind of carry you along, especially if you're not attaining the level of success you think you, you really hope in your mind to have, but to have the validation as a storyteller was a big deal. I would definitely say that Night Owls was that. So when you're when you're actually turning um, uh, turning that page and making, uh, I think everybody thinks that um, it's all about uh, making pretty pictures and knowing that hey they'll notice me because my you know my my photography is so great. But I I think you think otherwise. I think it has to be, it it has to be the totality of it, you know. Like I mean it's it's a great thing. You know I used to buy, I buy a lot of physical media. I still like having the movies that I own. And, you know, it's like, it's great. I would buy movies just because the cinematography was great. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say any specific titles, but I'd be like, I wasn't crazy about the movie, but it looks so great. And I would buy those movies and keep them on my shelves, but I would never watch them again. You know, and it was just one of those things where it's like, yeah, I mean, the cinematography can be beautiful, but if the film in terms of it, the totality, the storytelling doesn't connect with you, like that's what ends up happening. It ends up becoming just pretty pictures. And now you have, you're in a, a kind of realm where everybody has a really good quality phone, a really good quality camera on their phones. And everybody kind of understands the basic tenets of photography. There are so many different kinds of photographers out there now. It really does become about your, your skill set and your taste when it comes to cinematography and the storytelling. And that's when it, and, and that was something where it has to be more about the ostentatious, less about the ostentatious nature of camera work and more about your ability to use camera work in a specific way for storytelling purposes. And it kind of breeds a certain humility into you in terms of like understanding that you can't really go it alone. And it just, that kind of forces you to be a better collaborator with other departments. And it's just, it's, it's a realization that ultimately helps you be a better artist in terms of uh, filmmaking, so. Yeah, where, where's the humility gone? And, and that's kind of how you started as a, as a PA. Uh, uh, and uh, working your way up, and and I think you still use that, um, you know, those those principles of humility to to get along on a set, and and that's something that also struck a chord in that. Um, how, you know, how do you feel like uh, run, how important is it to run a set and uh, to obviously know and to uh, really vindicate each person and and let them know that they're so important in in this uh, process. I mean, that's. And that's everything. I mean, you know, like, I, I think everybody should PA. I really think it's an invaluable experience. You know, it teaches you to think of others before yourself, because that's all you can do when you're a, a production assistant. It breeds in a certain kind of like, uh, almost like being a butler, like you have to think about everyone else, and you have to be able to anticipate, and you have to be able to improvise. And there's, it's funny, but like all those skills get built into you when you're being a PA. I still do it. I mean, like I still walk when I walk by, uh, when, when I, when I walk by a, a, a cooler full of waters, 
I still grab a couple extra waters if I'm heading back to set and make sure people are hydrated, which all comes from being a PA. It just kind of teaches you to observe in a very specific manner, whether it means how other people are doing or how they're carrying themselves. It teaches you to read body language. Um, all those skill sets that I learned as a PA, I employ to a tremendous degree as a director of photography because it helps me with understanding and being able to evaluate crew dynamics and evaluate, it teaches me how to be able to see if what I'm saying or doing to another person is either having an effect or is not sitting right with them. Um, it kind of builds in this kind of not spidey sense because that's incorrect, but it, it it's definitely teaches you through observation, the, abil the ability to assess interpersonal relationships in a really strong way on set. And that is a great deal of what the, my job is as a director of photography, especially on something as massive as a TV show when you have hundreds of crew people and tons of cast and day players coming in. And like it teaches, it just, it helps you to be able to make sure all those stitches kind of hold together, you know? And it's like, and, and that's really what it is. It's that, that kind of management of people and, and, uh, and that's why that's everything I learned as a as a PA, and then have kind of molded and kind of sharpened over the over the years. It's, it really does go back to being a PA, in my, in my estimation. Do you tend to have those same guys um, on on your set, the crew that you want to hire back or work work with? Well, I mean, you try. I mean, like I've had people who I've invested a great amount of time in, and then I want to like I want to consistently have relationships with my gaffer Joel Minnick is a perfect example you know like I were I started with Joel in New York and he was the kind of person who was kind thoughtful artistically valid with true emotional sentiment and connection to material I mean he is a technician but he also has the kind of soul of an artist in terms of the way that he views light and how it affects sets and scenes and characters and when you find somebody like that who has that kind of sensitivity and uh, the skill set technically and from a personal level is just a lovely human being like when i find people like that like i want to work with them i seek whatever opportunity i can to get back to them so for me and joel joel and i had a period where we didn't work together for six or seven years he was a union gaffer in New York, making good money and establishing himself in that. And I was running around chasing tax credits all over America, doing under millions, trying to kind of find my way in a narrative. And I never stopped thinking about Joel. My, and I always kept in touch with him, even though I could never get him off of elementary or whatever other show he was working on because he was making light years, more money and union hours and pension than I could. I was desperate to get back together with him. Same thing with my friend Wes Cardino, who's a camera operator and uh, director of photography out in Los Angeles. Um, my friend Jason Oldak, who's now a very uh, successful director of photography, shoots good girls. Um, when you find those people, you, you, you have to try and reconnect with them. And for the most part, I've been able to pay all their efforts in the beginning when they were killing themselves for me for nothing onto opportunities that help them further their career, you know, like, uh, it's it's been a great great uh i take great satisfaction being able to fulfill that personal obligation to them because they they're critical to to my growth and, and development as a filmmaker so well it's interesting that um 
also, you speak of just a turn of luck that um, you ended up getting glow uh, just by uh, over a dinner conversation. And I think we take for granted that, you know, if you've made a decent impression and been good to people, that it might be just that opportunity. Uh, so uh, talk about that. What, well, how, how did that come about? Well, um, my friend Reed Morano, who is ridiculously huge now and turning, you know, the first woman to ever win a directing Emmy. She's an incredible filmmaker and she's an incredible cinematographer, first and foremost, how she started her career and now she's an incredible director. But she, um, we were, we were friends, you know, and, um, and it just, we, we ended up connecting and over the years and just staying and being supportive of one another. And it was basically because she had at this point been a very successful cinematographer. Uh, she was working in a lot of TV, doing a lot of films. She was incredibly in demand. And um, she knew Jesse Perens, who was this really accomplished uh, director in his own right. And um, they had worked together on Divorce, this HBO show. And just happened to happen to, they just happened to reconnect in London between projects. And Jesse at that table uh, basically just said to her like, oh, this is something you can help me with. Uh, Glow needs a new director of photography. And, um, and Reed dropped my name, you know, and because she dropped my name, that got my reel in the door. And then I got an interview and then I got the show. And then since then, you know, I've been working on consistently in TV on shows that are exponentially bigger in terms of budget and prestige than, than anything I had previously been able to do. And I think the reason why Reed has uh, mentioned my name is obviously she wouldn't speak, speak up for me if she didn't think I could do the job. But, you know, like I was, I'm a, I'm a, I think we had a kind of respectful relationship where I would do whatever I could to help her. I was just trying to be as kind as I could to somebody I respected. And I think she was just trying to be kind back. But if we weren't, if we didn't have that kind of relationship in terms of like being good, kind people to one another, I don't know what happens, but those kind of relationships, you know, like if you nurture them from the beginning, you know, they can hopefully bear fruit, you know, that's, I've been able to do that now with uh, my friend Claudio and my friend Shannon, who are, directors of photography in their own right. And uh, and I brought them onto Rami uh, season one. And then season two, Claudio, when I when I couldn't do Rami, was able to step up and, and get Rami's for season two as director of photography. And Shannon was able to come up and be a camera on Rami season two. And uh, through Hook by Hooker by Crook, I was able to get Shannon a, uh, in on a small project that won her an Emerging Cinematographer Award. And, uh, you know, their careers are starting to take off. and. You know, it is about the relationships you have with people that you respect and people you care about. And and frankly, if you do establish the relationships and you are connected and you do kind of invest in that kind of way with one another, like it, it, it you do have a duty to, in my opinion, to to help those people along and 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 give them an opportunity that you've been able to have. So, well, there's the getting there, and then there's the staying there part of it, correct? And yeah, what what are some of the things that you tried to uh, practice, especially on, on your first season. I mean, you know, that is, that's a, that's a pretty good gig to, to be on, to be on a, a series show and, and beyond for how long were you on that, um, uh, time-wise it was one season, but how long, how long did that equate to? Well, I was shooting, 
after I did Glow, I did another show for Genji Cohen for Jamie Denbo, uh, the creator called uh, American Princess. And right at the end of American Princess, I got a call about Rami and I read the script and I saw the idea for the season. And I was like, this is going to be, I knew it reading the script. I was like, this is going to be a show that's going to hit. Like, or it's going to be going to be culturally relevant. It's going to be something that I think it's going to, if it's not just going to be seen, because you never know if people are going to watch it, but it's something that I knew I would be proud to be a part of. So even though like I've been getting my butt kicked on American Princess and Simi Valley with 120 degree heat for five months, as soon as I wrapped up that Friday or Saturday morning, Saturday, early Saturday morning, that, uh, the next Thursday morning, they wanted me to start prep. And I was in California. So like I slept from about 3 a.m. until 10 a.m. that morning and then got on the road and drove back across America in four days to start Thursday morning. And and, uh, and then it was September until, I can't remember exactly when we finished. We had a couple additional days the following, Jan- uh, the following January into the new year. But that was like, you know, it was a five month gig and then going through color and post and whatnot. And it was a, uh, and it was really valuable. Rami was incredibly generous and trusting, and he had a great vision for the show. And people like Christopher Storr and Bridget Bedard, who helped put that thing together, like they killed it. You know, so it's like when you're with people who are that high quality, like you're gonna do. It's it's hard. You have to mess up pretty badly to not at least do like good work, competent work. Now, whether or not that show connects with an audience, you never know. But when you're dealing with craftsmen and and artisans of that kind of level, like doing good work comes easier just because their their game is always a level. They're always trying to make the greatest thing possible, regardless of any kind of excuses or budget limitations or schedule limitations. They have a drive and they have a certain passion for the, the material that comes through. And, and that kind of passion through those department heads carries and elevates everyone else's work. That's what happens when you have really good people at the helm of your departments. Those department heads are, you know, they really do. They do provide the win that kind of fills the sales so to speak as far as talent uh talent acquisition or be or being i I should i should say being talented do you think talent is uh you know when you get to the level you're at is it is it mostly because you have that inert talent or you just worked hard to attain that obviously there's that nature versus nurture or combination of it how did you feel that where did you sit with that that um i know i know you had a, a different type of background you were a history history major correct and, yeah, it's history uh, and sociology. Yeah. And sociology major, uh, and and you know you leverage that probably in, in in I don't basically in how how you how you saw the world, but how did you bring the art part of it, and how did you how did you know how to because uh, you're always interested in photography, but how did that translate uh, to what uh, what level you are now? Well, I mean, I would say this. I mean, my the nature of my mind in terms of an analytical analytical sense is more akin to that kind of historian in terms of research and kind of understanding and and trying to assess it that way. I do have some of my father's kind of like using stuff with my hands and developing kind of a developing a skill set over time. Once I start to get my hands on things that develops rather quickly. Um, but you know in terms of actually being developing a sense of artistry as opposed to just being innately talented. I don't know if I'm really that cinematographer in terms of innately talented. I think part of what was great about college for me was that it taught me how to think. And I think that ability to kind of break things down critically and assess them 
is what really helps me into the storytelling sense. And then all the skill set for photography is built over the years of working on set. You know, I didn't go to film school, so I kind of had to learn everything on set. Even something as simple as when, you know, like uh, understanding what, sh how to develop sharper shadows as a, as a grip or, you know, like exactly what uh, a specific unit does. You know, like I had to learn all that stuff on set. So it was always a learning process for me. The key is not having any kind of shame about the fact that you don't know anything. I have no problem saying I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't feel like everyone's like, are you gonna know how you're gonna do this? I'm like, no, I don't know. We'll find it, you know? Or like, do you know what this light does? I, I don't know what this light does. Can you please explain it to me? You know, or can I at least see what it looks like? And I can decide whether or not I think it looks proper on a face. I've never used this level, this kind of diffusion that you really love. You know, why don't you show me what tough spun does or why don't you show me what, never used magic cloth. Let's take a look at it, you know? I think the idea of being able to accept new ideas and not being ashamed of the fact or insecure about the fact that you don't know something, that's a big deal in terms of uh, growing. So, you know, I'm always looking to learn more. I'm always assuming there's someone who can teach me something. PAs can teach me something, you know? So it's like, it doesn't, I don't think it really matters. I, I think that's the great thing about filmmaking is like, you can just, you develop your skill over time. So. But, but when, and, and obviously, you know, I think that that's, that's a great attribute where you just are always learning. I mean, you should be a lifelong learner anyway, but how, sure. how do you feel then the, uh, the level of, there's so many talented filmmakers. I mean, um, even in my area, I look around and, and I look at other people who do, do what I do and I'm always amazed at how good they are. And, um, what do you think the difference is in, in how they, you know, is it, is it, is it how they get along with people? Is it, uh, they, they just happen to be in the right place at the right time? I'm sure there's a combination of that, but do you think there's that it factor that, that gets people to the next level? Or if you can call that a next level, it's just a different level, I guess, is the way to put it. Well, that's not, I mean, it's so competitive in the film industry now. There are so many cinematographers. It's incredible how many cinematographers there are now. And it's, it's, and with the fact that it is so competitive, you know, like it's, it really is cuts down on your ability to be able to be like one cinematographer connecting with a bunch of different directors. That's why like most of the time when a, a director hits or does really well, they usually have a director of photography alongside them, already established, not already established, but their relationship is already established because there are so many people all over the world trying to like construct films and find these relationships that kind of bring them and like if you can meet somebody who is who has artistic talent you know like and you can utilize them to make your art better like those people all start to 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 kind of you know they all start to congregate together and like develop their own you can see that with all the kind of success of regional filmmakers like my you know like zachary burns and uh, they just they just did this film in oklahoma called shifter that just got released and you know that's a small the oklahoma city filming group is like really small and it's just like the way you can kind of like blossom into the next level oftentimes is either through decided hard work or having a small contingent of people who are really passionate and work really hard that kind of can develop into that kind of storytelling collective or like you just you know you maybe you get lucky and you meet the right person at the right time or someone just happens to see that short you did and gives you a sh it's so it could it's it is kind of by chance in many ways it can be completely random the thing is, if you don't put forth those things out into the world, those projects, 
if you're not putting out that stuff into the world for people to see, you know, like you're not, you're, you don't have a lottery ticket out there that someone can try and hit your number, so to speak, you know, like the more stuff you can put into the world in terms of like trying to get someone to get eyeballs on your work, the greater chance you have of someone actually seeing that work and being like, Hey, this, maybe this cinematographer is not the most experienced person in the world, but I really like this short. Maybe we can connect and work on something. That's how you see that all over now with like cinematographers who just reach out to somebody on Vimeo because they like their work and, or someone reaches out to a cinematographer because they like their photography. And then who knows where those relationships go. There are so many more avenues now for those kind of links to happen as opposed to when I started when there's barely any, any internet and that kind of, collective consciousness of filmmaking wasn't really kind of present for you to kind of try and draw connections from. But in terms of getting that next level, you know, it's like, you got to find, that's the thing about filmmaking. It's not painting. It's not something singular. It's a, it's a collaborative effort. So you need to find writers and directors and producers who are producing good material that, that can actually, from a cinematography standpoint, allow you to be able to tell a good story. And yeah. That's, that's the thing. You just have to keep searching for those kind of relationships. You have to keep searching for those opportunities. It seems you know, almost like you, a game of attrition, right? I mean, where you, you just have to keep... Perseverance going. is a great deal. of Perseverance is everything. Because if you're not a cinematographer who, or a director who hits on that first Sundance movie or even gets... You know, I always talk about it's like it's like winning the lottery of the lottery. You know, it's not just about getting into Sundance. Like, you then have to win Sundance. So not only you have to be one of those 12,000 submissions that finds their way into Sundance, that you then have to be one of those submissions that actually wins Sundance or does really well at Sundance and is able to get a release. And, you know, it's like, it is a war. It is a war of perseverance. The longer you can be in the game, the longer you can hang around and keep working and learning and being able to sustain yourself. That, that just gives you a greater chance to be able to succeed. And the more people who know you, and know your work ethic, you know, because if you're and if you're a really talented person, but you're a terrible person to work for, like, sure, you may be able to transcend your terrible reputation and be able to make something that's really great that connects with people. And they'll say, I want that cinematographer. I don't care. But at the end of the day, like for me, like if you're not a good person to work with, like we're not working together. And for the most part, I think that's pretty true with people. You know, transcendent art, talent it can get you so far. But if you're not a person who people want to be able to be with more than their families, frankly, because if you're going to be with somebody for 70, 80 hours a week on set, you see them more than you see your wife or your, your, your family, they got to be someone I really enjoy spending time with who, you know, doesn't kind of end up, doesn't end up shortening my life by creating stress or, or, or agitation in me. So you know, like that's another thing. You can have all the talent in the world. You better be a good person. For me, you gotta be kind. So, have you enjoyed the uh, the journey? Obviously, in 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 getting through, because uh, you know, go, get, attaining a goal or getting into a festival is only such a small percentage of filmmaking, or or really, technically, of your life. Have you enjoyed the ride and the process? Yeah, of course. I mean, there are definitely times when I'm like, I'm done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. Not because I don't want to do it anymore, but because, because I still loved it. But it's like, it is like, there are definitely times when I was like, okay, I'm just like, I don't know how long I could do this, you know, because it is difficult. I mean, it was literally, it was nearly 20 years 
not not quite but you know I, it was over 15 years before i got glow you know and when you get that kind of opportunity yeah it's, it's obviously very intimidating and exciting but you know it's it's hard to another uh, another difficult thing that I, I i didn't realize until afterwards after glow was that as entertaining and as 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 fulfilling as it was to make films and do shorts that win competitions and whatnot is that like you know films and projects are meant to be seen and if your stuff isn't getting an audience i don't mean you need to be lavished with praise but just see people knowing that people are getting to see the work like that's part of it the communal aspect of of of, of screening something of, of filmmaking connecting is a big deal it's a big part of it that's why watching a film at home is a decidedly different experience than watching it in a theater with 300 400 people you know it's it's a it's a totally different kind of experience. So, you know, it's it's a very difficult thing to to maintain perspective on the ride. And if you are losing that perspective about how important the work is and to you and, and in regards to the industry, like sometimes you have to take a step back or if you still really love it, then you and you know that the journey is part of it, but you love the work so much. Like you'll, you'll, you'll fight through it. My wife, my wife said it to me before often. She's like, even times when I told her that I didn't know how much longer I could do it. She was like, nothing else makes you happy like that. And that always gave me the anchor to be like, am I ever going to be as happy as I am on set? And the answer was always no. And as soon as I knew the answer was no, it's like, well, you better get back on the damn horse and, you know, keep fighting, you know? So that really, that kind of thing whenever i doubted it i would anchor myself to that and then once i got to glow then it became a different anchor then it became the anchor of you have a career you're starting to work build it keep all maintain all the other things you've talked about and maintain all the other things you think about that's valuable about the career and the position and the industry but then you have to then you start to get that weird position that you're often not used to if you're the used to the person who is killing themselves on really, really small projects, no matter what is, you have to gauge what's important to you artistically. Where do you want to go? What stories do you want to tell? And I could tell you from my perspective, struggling for so long that anytime I would get offered a job, I would be like, I have to take that job because that's how long it was. That's how it was for me for 20 years. It's like, not only do I have to eat, but like somebody wants me to shoot something, yes. And now you have to get to a point once you start getting a career, it's like, well, what kind of stories do you want to tell? You know, it's kind of funny. Like this week, I just had three interviews for three different jobs. And it's like in the past, I would be desperate for whatever job that says yes to me. I'm going to go do that job. But now I have to kind of think in a different way. What's the next path? What's the next project I want to do that's in relation to the filmography? And that is a weird thing, but it's something that I knew was coming. But it's still hard to recalibrate your decision making process in that regard. So it's hard. It might it's it's also it probably was very nice to have choices and um and i'm sure that uh you know it, it, that when projects come your way and, and you get that one break that you're able to um open up a whole bunch of doors and and, uh, and allow that opportunity so as far as your process and when you when you stepped on to glow i mean it, obviously there was a um you you were uh, taking on a year that was you know year two you had the kind of uh, um, either reinvent or because you're, you're, you're different cinematographers. Um, the, yeah. you, you have a different style. How did the producers and the director embrace that and say, 
hey, we want you to we want you to bring your own style to the uh, to the show, and here's what we want to show. What are your ideas? Is that how they approached you? Yeah, they basically had an idea of like they have they have a strict idea about what they feel their show is, and then they're looking for you once they hire you to basically come in and explain about what's your nature of how you feel the nature of the photography is. Now for Glow for me, second season was, you know, I wanted to have a really firm idea about where the, the, the season was going so that I could tell a story with the cinematography. And the whole linchpin for that season for me was the fact that like, these were people who were now establishing themselves as performers. And then there was this really interesting uh, kind of collision between the nature of what it meant being a performer and still being that person, you know? So it's like, I, I really wanted to kind of see what the connection was between the theatricality of being a performer and the reality of still being a human being with all these kind of flaws. And there's so many kind of inter, there were so many kind of intersections that season between the character and the real life. I kind of wanted to be able to kind of meld those kind of styles where sometimes some of the stylization of, of, of show lighting would kind of peek its way into the real world. And then some of the kind of anchored, more realistic stuff would kind of play into the show. And, you know, it's, it's funny because Christian Springer is a magnificent cinematographer, but lights in a way that is completely different from the way I light. And so much of the style that's cinematography in terms of the finish is done in post with Ian Vertivec in, in, in Light Iron. So there's only so much that you can do to kind of position yourself cinematographically, you know? And then I, it, it's kind of a thing where so much of that stuff is done in post. So you kind of have to find a way to modulate your photography to be able to fit an idea of where it will eventually go. You know, and we didn't have a ton of time for tests and something we kind of landed and jumped right into it. And then, you know, the directors, you know, for the season are, you know, they're, they try to inject as much of themselves into their, their ideas of how they see the, the perspective of a particular episode over the arc of a season. But they also have to be responsible to the, the showrunners and the writers. And that's a really interesting dynamic because coming from features as I was, the director was always king. So, you know, like everything about realizing their vision is what's paramount and important to you in terms of your support. And then when they get to television, that dynamic changes drastically. And, and in terms of, you know, like there has, the director has also becomes a conduit as opposed to being the North Star that you kind of like guide everything by. They're trying to shift everything through the, the perspective of the writers and the showrunners. And then you have to do both at the same time. You have to be able to funnel and honor the director's wishes while still making sure that the showrunner's ideas are the ones that kind of are critical to the, the path that you move forward through throughout the arc of 10, 12 episodes, depending. And that to me was the most, where most of my growth as a cinematographer in that first season of Glow, that first season I did, second season, that was the biggest point of, of for me, was that learning curve between understanding the roles of showrunner, writers, and where the place of the director fits in with the relationship with the cinematographer. So it's definitely that, a rocky shoal to navigate. It's just not, you know, and, and people say, well, just do a good job technically, but you, you also have to navigate what all that dynamic is between, you know, the, the, the parties that, that make decision or the decision makers 
Um, sure. And I'm sure that was, that was a challenge. Do you generally like working with technical directors or directors to say, you know what, I trust you, you can do it all. Um, uh, you know, I'll, obviously I wanna be able to at least sign off and see what's going on. Or did, did they give you a pretty much free run if you can talk about that? If you can, I understand, but it, how, well, much, how much latitude did you have? Well, it depends also on like the nature of a director. You know, like Lynn Shelton is not the kind of director who kind of employs theatrical cam camera dynamics. You know, like uh, the moving camera is something that is strictly her highest priority. You know, she's a director who is more in tune, uh, in tune with theme and character and how that progresses through a script. Whereas you could work with somebody like Claire Scanlon and Claire has very specific ideas about how she wants to progress through a scene visually with, uh, you know, like, so, you know, Lynn is a little bit more organic in the way that she likes to attack uh, the blocking of scenes. You know, she likes to see the heavily input of the actors. Claire is somebody who has a battle plan from the, from the, the first moment and a way to progress kind of camera and actors through the scene. And then depending on the wishes and wants of certain actors, like she can amend her, her process. You know, so like it really is interesting in television when you're working with multiple directors is to try and have them understand the focus of what the content of the intent of camera is in the show that you've established while allowing them to have their methodology. Because if you kind of stunt that away from them, you're really kind of detracting from the, the great potential of what an episode can be. You kind of have to harness all that stuff. You have to harness the best parts of a director's vision honor that and still be able to fit it within the context of this kind of show that you've kind of worked to establish and, and mold all those things together into a cohesive whole. And that's why the cinematographer and television is so critical because they're usually the person who is there through the long haul kind of shepherding the show. So it's funny how I always thought that when it came to cinematography, that the importance of the director of photography to a feature film is going to be incredibly critical. But I found in my experience over the course of it that, you know, from a responsibility standpoint, you really kind of are the 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 mass, the center, the center mass when it comes to um, the, the direction of a not the not the technical direction, but the kind of storytelling direction of, of, of television. So it's a, it's an interesting thing to kind of observe. And and that's a funny thing because you also have to give uh, everybody on the show the necessary coverage to be able to feel like they can mold the show if they need to especially in terms of comedy the timing and whatnot so you know you have to be true about where you want the intent of camera but then you also have to make sure that you're providing the coverage they need to be able to make changes if they need to that's another fascinating thing that you really don't know about until you actually get into the thickets of, of television production for most of the time of the show, did you end up? Uh, is it was it a one one or two camera shoot? Uh, did you? For I glow? mean, did you tend to use for for glow? Did you tend to use two cameras or one one most of the time? Or I've never done picture? TV without. I've never done TV without less than two cameras. Never. Just, I mean, they're just. It's always looking for some type of piece, and you have to be very careful because if you give a second camera a shot, like you have to be under the understanding that there's a good possibility an editor is going to use it. So like, if you really don't like a shot, like you have to have the fortitude to be like, this is the shot. If I give them this, they're going to use it. Let's not set up that other camera. And that's a risky proposition, but you have to be able to, 
to do that. That's still something I work on being able to have the, the, uh, the confidence to be like, can we just shoot this one shot? <laughs> you know? You... So it's like, it's tough. What do you, you know, you, do you operate at all? I loved operating, but, uh, I have actually had a, I have a, uh, injury to my left leg that if I now try and do handheld, you see, like, you see this, you see the step. So if you really want to feel the camera, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll you're the guy. <laughs> yeah. But I was, uh, I loved operating. I loved, handheld. I loved, uh, that's one point I will be immodest. I was an excellent handheld operator. Well, I was, I was extremely confident in my ability to in handheld. I can't really do it anymore. And frankly, before that happened, I really didn't understand the nature of why operators were so important. But now after working with so many operators over the course of so many seasons of television, I really start to understand just how important having those different set of eyes are on set. It's now it's a, it's a wonderful gift, frankly, to be able to not have to strangle, hold the control of the frame all the time, be able to share it and still have the wherewithal to be like, this is the frame. This is the lens. This is where we should be. You know, that well, collaborative, that collaborative element of working with operators actually, I think, makes you makes you stronger because it makes you it makes you be more definitive. It makes you focus your eye. I imagine with two, especially with two uh, cameras going at once where you're probably at video village or, or, or just offset. I, it don't, do you feel that at least you have that control to look at both, uh, both cameras? Yeah, I, I actually really, I, I usually try and stay as close as I can to set. Um, but like, it's, it's, it's great fun to be able to work with operators. It's amazing. I like, I, I, I think for me, it's always something really, really exciting to be able to, look at a scene, have a real idea of how I want to do it, but then talk to my operator and be like, what do you think? And then if they can give you a different perspective that ends up enriching your shot or changing the nature of how you think the scene should play. I mean, if you're not examining that kind of stuff, I, I don't see how, how not, I don't see how not examining things that have the possibility of making your work better is artistically responsible. Like how, how, if you don't do it, I think you have to be able to do it and you have to have the confidence to be able to examine any different kind of perspective on, on how you're doing uh, a scene or a particular shot. It just ends up, it just always ends up being better or you know exactly what it, you, or it solidifies your idea of what is actually not right about it. Like you could be like, no, this is definitely, my shot is definitely the one. This is, this is the right decision. It can crystallize things in a way like that. But that car, that collaborative creative process is, is something I, I wouldn't give up now. I, I love having operators. So um, you you then uh, briefly went on to to, to do Rami and uh, a little bit different and uh, as far as style, but you know not not so dissimilar, but uh, just a little bit different. Tell me what your approach was there and uh, what, you know, how you, how you brought on what your previous knowledge is from Glow to uh, move on to Rami. Well, Rami, you know, Rami is different because, you know, the camera is more observational, you know, whereas for Glow, the camera is actually more of an artic- uh, active participant. You know, and for Rami, it was more about being able to, it was more about the look of the show being a bigger part of the storytelling than strictly camera movement, you know, and being able with careful composition and blocking to be able to, you know, tell 
give the give the show some specificity. Uh, the methodology behind it was the, the the idea for me is that Muslim families and are not something that most Americans are really exposed to. And even if they are exposed to it, it's filtered through a kind of me- perception in the media that is, uh, I wouldn't want to say it's, 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 uh, it's racist, but it's limited at best. And, um, and it was just something where I, want, I wanted to be able to create a look that wasn't strictly tied to reality. I wanted to be able to create a look that was that looked like TV or looked cinematic. And what I wanted to be able to do was kind of filter the audience's expectation of a real portrayal of a, of a Muslim family mm-hmm. and a young man trying to find his, his his find his way with his religion into an American life. I wanted to be able to filter that through a look that was like highly stylized in terms of the, the, the color palette and just uh, the look of it and and that way through this kind of really cinematic or stylized look the i could kind of we can sneak in this really kind of real and honest portrayal of people and we could use the kind of idea of a cinematic look to try and like hide the medicine so to speak and uh and it was just a particular choice now if we had gone with something that was like really heavily handheld and, and more dramatically raw would that have worked could be, there are tons of ways to skin a cat creatively, but it's just something from an instinctual and emotional level that felt right to me. And it, Rami and Chris Dore and Bridget actually ended up responding to it, and we went with it. You know, so I think it's fantastic. So what's a, what's in the future for you besides what's going on with? Uh, um, you know, you obviously we're not going to talk about the three projects you 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 were interviewed for. I totally, uh, of course, <laughs> I don't, under, I don't get any of them. Yeah, well, you know, we can't we can't you know we don't know. So, are are you looking to do um, uh, hopefully a, a feature or television, or you do, you do you lean toward one or the other? I don't. I actually just want the best story. I want yeah. the best material. I think. That's... Um, so it just ended up being Love Life was really good material that I could exercise. 10 different LUTs on 10 different episodes because of the the anthology nature of the show. I could, I could experiment a great deal with, with, with LUTs and different looks on that show. Mm -hmm. Fuji based LUTs and Kodak based LUTs and more extreme uses of grain. And we had a lot of, even though the style wasn't radically different from show to show, the, the LUTs and the color palette changed. So, you know, that was a fun thing to do. And then I was able to jump in after that and do the flight attendant, which isn't out yet. Brian Burgoyne um, shot the first two episodes of the pilot and the second episode. And then I came in and shot episodes three through five. And that is a more kind of like a Hitchcock, the Palma esque comedy space. So it's like a, it's kind of a funny, interesting kind of mix between suspense and comedy. So I was able to tackle something a little bit different. Plus it's an hour long show, which has a different kind of feel to it than half an hour shows do. And then uh, I was about to leave to go do a, uh, this show in Nigeria and all everything kind of blew up. So now I'm just waiting at home, hoping for the next thing to action, waiting for the wheels of production to start turning again. So. Oh, they will. And they'll, they'll just probably be a little different. And, you know, we, we find a way of adjusting, I'm sure. Is there um, uh, a couple of real quick technical questions and we're going to close sure. here is that, um, uh, is there a particular uh, uh, way of uh, judging exposure that you like to bring on set? Do you have your own monitor, or is it is it or do you use a 
use a waveform monitor or, or um, uh, bring a bring a meter? Uh, is there a particular way? I still work? I still use a meter, mm-hmm. um, even though the monitor is uh, is God, so to speak, for for digital cinematography. I still use the meter because I still want to know what my ratios are. Uh-huh. I still want to know what the particular, especially if I'm doing set work. I still want to know what those lights are doing at a particular distance. I want to know what that reflective value is. I want to know all those things from a measuring standpoint so that if I come back to something, you know, it's, it's something I just have more control over. And then like, if I know what is happening here as a two eight, you know, or if it's a, if I'm lighting a key at, at a two and a half and I know I can finagle with my stop a little bit, if I want to open up and shoot something at a two, or if I want to stop down a little bit and shoot something at a two weight, you know, like I can have that kind of versatility to be able to control those bits. You know, I usually am not a kind of person who shoots super wide open. I usually am at about a two eight, two eight and a half uh, for interiors and anywhere from a two eight and a half to a four on exteriors. Um, but the great thing about being able to light to that stop is that I can easily just throw an ND in and shoot more wide open if I really want to. But I usually try and light to that stop so it gives me a bit more versatility and heaven forbid needing to shoot at a deeper stop for focus sake or whatnot um if i can have bigger lights and i know where i can hang stuff so that if i need to go to a four for some reason especially in set work i can make those changes um just by metering it always ends up giving me a better baseline in terms of understanding and frankly it leaves it gives me separation from people you know, it allows me time to think on set and everybody wants to know everything. And but if they're seeing me taking readings and whatnot, usually I get left alone. And that gives me a time to just have a moment of breath on set and be like, hmm, and think about things and calculate. Whereas if I don't, if I'm just looking, people just invariably come up to me and start asking questions about something or some other thing that needs to be done or this scout that happens on Friday. Hey, can you take a look at the set design for this next thing? Uh, the meter gives me a little bit of a, a force field, so to speak. And then in terms of uh, in terms of tools, you know, like I like I like using the waveform just to be able to understand and see where my highlights are, making sure those things are safe. And then uh, in terms of blacks and then the toe of it, you know, I, I kind of let that stuff go. Um, I'm a little bit more adventurous with that than I am with my. Uh, uh, I'm a little more adventurous with the bottom half of my curve as opposed to my highlights. I really tend to be careful with that. And then. You know, especially if I'm dealing with a show that is a really heavy LUT, I always end up with a thick negative. I always end up trying to give myself as much room as possible. And then there are certain DPs who like can operate in the complete opposite direction, who want to stretch the hell out of their negative and beat the hell out of the sensor so that they are very specific with the look and it can't really change. I started in film, so a thick negative is something that always kind of like speaks to me. If I know I have a thick negative, Especially if I have such a, uh, if I have a really talented colorist with me, like Steve Bodner at Light Iron, then I know that he's going to be able to shape the photography anyway to my intent. And uh, that's why when Steve's coloring, you know, I can be remote like uh, it was with Love Life. Or I can, I don't need to be in the room with him. I can let him take a pass and then I can look at it afterwards and be like, we're pretty much aligned. And he kind of knows exactly where I want to go. That's why when we're, during COVID when we were coloring uh, uh, Love Life and everybody was worried. I'm like, I'm not worried. I'm going to get a good file. I'm going to be able to take a look at stuff. I know Steve's intent. He knows mine. 
and uh, that show ended up looking, you know, like we didn't have, we had no issues in terms of running through color correction. It was a pretty smooth process regardless of this damn virus. Because you think that's such a, a great place or a place that a lot of people want to be is that they worry about, you know, that's the way I envisioned it. But when, when you see it up, uh, especially with commercial work, it's not at all where, where you, you had envisioned it or started off. And uh, so I, I imagine you still like being in the color suite. I do. But if I have Steven there, then I know I have somebody whose taste is like remarkably similar to mine and he's just discerning. So like when he makes choices as an artist, like, you know, that it's not some kind of willy nilly person kind of like throwing caution to the wind and just messing around, so to speak. Like there are there's real intent and, and there's real merit artistically to his efforts as a colorist. And it just happens to align with mine photographically. So there's great security in that. And not to mention, he's a really great guy. So no, it's a pleasure to work with somebody like that. Back to your original uh, or, original concepts, too. So um, uh, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. And where can we find you if you want to be found? Oh, um, well, anybody can. My uh, If you go on my website, Adrian Pancarea, um, you can, there's all kinds of contact information for me there. There's my, my, uh, my email and my phone number, if you want to talk about something. And then I'm also on Instagram at Adrian Penn Correa. So look for me there. And, you know, I, if someone wants to zoom and talk about cinematography, you know, send me, send me a, say hi. And if we can talk and I can help you through navigate some of the, uh, the issues in the industry and I'd love to. So I'm always open to hear from people. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian, for coming on. I look forward to having you on the show again. Please follow us on social at Red Bicycle Media and hit subscribe to our podcast. And please leave a review. Until next time, this is James Bizarre, your host. Thanks for listening.